irrespective. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop chorus. Well, uh, I'm super excited. Uh, first of all, Jane, how are you? I'm good. It's been a year. I can tell you that, uh, as I know it's been a year for everyone. But we're excited for lots of good things that are happening, but there's tons of challenges ahead. So I'm excited to talk about all that with you today. Yeah, yeah. Before we get to all of that, I just need you, if nothing else, on January 20th, 2021, when President Biden canceled the Keystone XL pipeline. How did you feel? Honestly, I was in total shock. Uh, We really worked uh, during the 2020 election cycle to get all the Democrats to pledge that they would reverse Keystone XL and that they would also, this is a kind of hidden part of the pledge that Biden signed on to, that they would also cancel the Standing Rock Pipeline, the Dapple Pipeline, and Line 3. We were very clear that all those pipelines were together, all carrying tar sands. Um, so when I heard from folks in the White House that this was going to happen, I was shocked. I was obviously very happy and excited and also just nervous because this meant 10 years that I personally fought it, 12 years for a lot of the tribes and the landowners. Um, you know, what did this mean now? And what exactly did it mean for all the logistical steps that we had to take care of, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into later on about landowners are still fighting eminent domain. Um, but it was definitely a recognition that when you use your political power uh, and you bring unlikely alliances together, politicians have no choice but to listen to us. And so that was all like reinforced in that moment. Did you, did you, did you clap? Did you cry? Did you shout? I mean, I, we, I, I thank you for the. So, you know, I, I've known Jane. Jane Cleve is amazing and she is out there doing it. That was the Jane Cleve response for for the politics side. I need the Jane Cleve. Yes, we did it. We made it. I need you to give me the good old fashioned bold Nebraska response. I need that bold Nebraska response. Well, you know that I giggle a lot. And so I, you know, started just like when I saw them signing the executive orders, you know, all these tribal leaders and landowners were like, is it true? Like, we haven't seen it yet, so we don't believe it. You know, everybody was very skeptical that there was some conspiracy theory. And I was just kind of giggling because it was all this like stress that was like lifted off our shoulders that we were in that moment. So, yeah, there were a lot of smiles. Mm, I love it. Tell the audience, who is Jane Fleming Cleve and how did you get into this climate work? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So definitely not a rural girl to begin with. Uh, Did a lot of work in social change movements. I ran an AmeriCorps program for, you know, to increase kids literacy scores for several years and then decided to get into the work of mental health. I had struggled with an eating disorder when I was younger, so did some work on mental health parity. But I just I was kind of like spinning in all that social justice work that I was doing because I was essentially saying to myself, is there any way that we can instead of putting band-aids or solving one problem on another, aren't there better people that we can get elected to solve these big systemic issues? Um, so I started to get into politics and I kind of stumbled my way into that. And I never thought I'd be involved in partisan politics, but a door opened and I kind of walked through it. And so that's how I found a cute cowboy who was running for a very rural (laughs) conservative district in Nebraska, but he was a Democrat, Scott Gleb. And when we met, it was just, it was one of those like love at first sight. And he was definitely not moving to DC. So we put our roots down in Hastings, Nebraska. Uh, We invented Kool-Aid for any of those that care. We have a Kool-Aid festival, two bucks. You can drink (laughs) all the Kool-Aid you want at once a year. And so I'm here now in Nebraska in a kind of see a red, really trying to prove that we can reach rural voters again. And there's a lot of common ground between rural and urban and just kind of fighting every step of the way to make sure that I continue to have a seat at the table and that we work on these issues all the time. So I'm also a mom of three. Uh, one of my kids is in college and one's in middle school and one's in elementary school. So we run the gamut. Wow. 
<laughs> now, I know this is a full stop moment. People who are listening say, hold up, Rev. Listen, please get to how we, how Jane and all those amazing activists and the indigenous community stopped Keystone. Get to that. But first, ask her, how does she get a cute cowboy? <laughs> you know, so I was the head of the Young Democrats of America, and our rural caucus asked me to bring in this guy, Scott Klebb. They were like, you know, he's running for, you know, office in Nebraska. We should really bring him in to speak to our convention. And I had no interaction with rural people up to that point. This was, you know, in my, you know, mid to late 20s. And I was like, no, like he's probably a Republican that couldn't get through the primary and is only pretending to be a Democrat. It's Nebraska. Um, but then they showed me a picture of him and I was like, oh, OK, <laughs> you know, he's this, you know, typical kind of cowboy guy wears Wranglers and cowboy boots everywhere he goes. So, <laughs> you know, that's how it, it that's how we met. Otherwise, I'm not, not sure our paths would have ever crossed. And Republicans would probably be very, very happy if our paths would have never crossed because <laughs> they wouldn't have had to deal with me all the time in Nebraska. But here I am. Well, listen, there was some time the stars must the stars must cross. That is a that's a great story. Now I know you spent most of your early organizing efforts um, with the Young Democrats of America and the DNC Youth Council. So as you speak about kind of your that background, how important is youth organizing and activism? You know, the youth vote I think is always taken for granted. And so when we started organizing young voters, it was in the early two thousands, and John Kerry was running for president against George W. Bush. And I was used to being in the streets, right? Being in the streets on WTO and uh, against the Iraq war. And I was looking at the Democratic Party and just saying, y'all aren't connecting with young people hmm. at all. And I was a young voter at the time. So I approached some friends that I knew that worked in the White House and said, we have to change this. Like, we can't go another election cycle where Rock the Vote is the only voice trying to reach young people. We need punk voters talking to punk voters. We need LGBT voters talking to LGBT kids. So it was like this peer-to-peer -peer organizing model that we wanted to test out with a partisan lens. Um, so they did give us some resources after lots of plan writing and you know coalition building. And the hip hop vote was part of that too. They, it you was, know, yeah. about, you know, So they were players at the table. And we went to the DNC and said, look, you got, your model is outdated. Like you're not including young people in the, we didn't have a lot of text messaging back then, right? But not including young people in phone banks and mailers. You're certainly not talking about the issues that we care about. Um, you know, when you say cut taxes, that doesn't mean anything to a young voter who's worried about student debt or getting health insurance or just wanting their, you know, gay friend to be able to not be fired from their job. So we started this whole, we essentially injected, from my perspective, social justice into the youth vote. And why that's so important is all of the research shows us that when a young person votes for a political party three times in a row, they become a party voter for life. So connecting with young voters and turning them out and making politics matter to their daily lives, to their pocketbook, is exactly what we need in order to build a long-term winning coalition across our country. No, I think that's great. So, Jamie, ask you this question, kind of piggybacking on that. One of the, the greatest things that happened to me was that I was my SGA president in undergrad, and then I was actually my SGA president in graduate school. Love um, it. And so, but in that process, what I learned was that a lot of times young people are giving resources and opportunities for a very short moment. And that's just creating a kiddie table. In other words, like, okay, you're here doing this and not able to really do the work that needs to be done. We, have, we really haven't seen a time like those back in Vietnam and uh, the Black uh, Liberation mo Movement in the 60s. We really haven't seen it um, grow the same way and where youth are supported. So now looking back on it, now looking back on that time from, from the time in 2004 and 2000 and, and those days, how can we best support you so that there isn't this kind of kiddie table approach where they're, they're kind of in this bubble, thinking they're doing so much, but not really in it? Because when they get out of that bubble, they're kind of put back into this line of not being able to do the work they can do. 
Yeah. So I was on a call actually yesterday with Chair Jamie Harrison, and it was some state party leaders and DNC members. But there was a representative of the Young Democrats of America on there. And he really put Chair Harrison on the spot saying, look, we can't be an afterthought anymore or giving us a little mini grant. Like we want to be in the room when everybody is talking about their constituency groups, their issues, and the strategies of how we're going to win in 2022 as well as in 2024. And that's exactly right. I think too many times there's a kid's table and then there's the adult table just like in Thanksgiving, and that happens in politics. And I mean, I'm certainly committed, and I know the Young Democrats of America are, to being in that room when the budget decisions get made. Because for me, that's really what it's about. We can do a lot of platitudes about how we know young voters are the, you know, the swing of an election. But if they're not in the room and the budget decisions are getting made, so they actually have a piece of that money pie, then it's all just lip service. So, right. you know, I'm confident that our party learned our lesson. We know that 2020 was a closer election than any of us wanted to ever see going up against somebody like Trump. So every vote has to be in that room when we're making decisions now for how we're going to move forward. No, I think that's great. I got to tell you a funny story here, Jane. Uh, you know, when we were back organizing, we were doing the Ford on Climate Rally and all the Keystone XL rallies. You know, back then, my job was to, I guess maybe still today, still a little bit, to get folks fired up, get them, <laughs> get them, get them, get them pumped up. And so I was, so, you know, back then I was getting ready, getting folk, and I had all, you know, you know, who streets, ah, streets. I had all, you know, I had all the great slogans at my uh, at my fingertips. So all of a sudden, the good folks in Nebraska came to me and said, we need you to say, uh, you know, with the Cowboy Indian Alliance, we need you to shout out CIA, CIA. And I was like, I'm not going to shout out CIA. I had no rally. And I know you got to shout out. It's what it is. It's the Cowboy Indian Line, CIA, CIA. That was one of the, so I was like, listen, this is only for you. This is only for my good folks in Nebraska and other folks fighting the Keystone Pipeline because, man, nobody would get me to shout at a rally. I'm shouting out CIA. So I just want to say in your work around the Keystone XL Pipeline, you were able to organize what you have called a unlikely alliance of farmers, ranchers, ranchers, tribal nations, and environmentalists in Nebraska. How did you do that, and why does it matter? You know, it took, let me first say that it took a lot of hard work and tears and laughter, but we did it because we really, first of all, we had a common ground goal, right? To protect the land and water. So that was first and foremost. There was definitely a common ground and a common purpose, but there were lots of cultural differences. You know, when I first started organizing farmers and ranchers against Keystone, my husband, who's a rancher was like, there is no way you're going to be able to keep farmers and ranchers at the same table because farmers and ranchers have two very different cultures. There's like you know, uh, country songs written about how ranchers have to keep their daughters away from. Anyway, it's like this whole thing. They sometimes don't like each other. They have two different ways of life. So that was like the first challenge, keeping them at the table. And then we got invited by Faith Spotted Eagle to go up to the Rosebud Sioux uh, Reservation to give a presentation about the Ogallala Aquifer. It's a big water source that was really a main uh, kind of focus of us trying to stop the Keystone XL pipeline, that source of water. And I have to say, I was nervous. I had never done any organizing with Native Americans. I didn't know the appropriate cultural practices. And I, of course, so were the farmers and ranchers, aware that they were now uh, living and working and caring for the land that our Native brothers and sisters were first caring, working on and loving and living on. So we go up there and I, you know, give my PowerPoint presentation, but then Faith Spotted Eagle and all her wisdom essentially turned to the farmers and ranchers and said, you know, we, we want to hear from you. Mm. We want to hear why you're fighting this pipeline and tell us your story. And there was a real elder in the room. His name was Chief Orville Looking Horse. And I knew that he was very important to the other tribes and that they considered him a deep spiritual leader. And he was sitting there with his arms kind of like this and looking down the whole time, even throughout my presentation, which of course made me more nervous because I was like, what am I doing wrong? 
But the farmers and ranchers got up and really spoke from their heart and spoke through tears, which you don't normally see farmers and ranchers kind of choke back tears and told the stories of how their ancestors, you know, homesteaded on that land. And they knew, you know, growing up that this was Ponca land, Pawnee land, Omaha land, Winnebago land, um, and how they now understand because the government is now taking their land through eminent domain, they understand how the tribes felt also and how much anger, you know, that brought. But, you know, as they were telling these stories, they just kept on coming back to, we have this common purpose together. And after Sticks, one of our ranchers sat down, you know, Chief Orville Looking Horse kind of stood up and kind of opened his arms really wide and mm. said, welcome to the tribe. And went on to explain that the cowboys and Indians have worked hand in hand, um, even throughout all the really awful history of those relationships. They stopped uranium mining and some other really bad projects in the Black Hills. And so we embraced the Cowboy and Indian Alliance, you know, from one, the people who walked the path long before us fighting other fights, and two, because that was this path that we were on together. And I do think that, you know, there were big moments where we had disagreements on strategy or somebody made a comment that was racist and hurt people's feelings. And we were able to get through that and not allow big oil and the Republicans to wedge us against each other because we did constant actions with one another. We were in the cornfields. We were in D.C. You know, we were in teepees together and we built the sense of family and Quite honestly, that's what we have to do in politics. We have to work kind of across racial and economic lines. Otherwise, the Republicans are going to continue to wedge us against each other every step of the way. No, I agree. I agree with you. Actually, I want you to go back to that moment when it's a beautiful story in which, um, who was it who had their arms folded? Chief Orville Looking Horse. Yeah. So at that moment when you were giving your PowerPoint presentation and his arms were crossed, now looking back with a different lens, because you've now lived more, mm -hmm. um, do you understand why his arms were crossed? Oh, yeah. And I made a lot of mistakes organizing along the way, you know, with my brothers and sisters when we did that big action in DC called Reject and Protect. You were there. We put mm -hmm. the 12 keys on the mall. Farmers, ranches, and tribes rode horses throughout DC to get Obama's attention because he really wasn't paying attention to us at that point. Um, and even then, you know, I was in my organizing mode, right? Like weeks ahead. And I was explaining to the tribes on a call that they couldn't sleep in the teepees because the permit, you know, wouldn't allow us to. And if they did, you know, it would essentially, you know, they take the teepees down and I got a lot of pushback from our native brothers and sisters because those are sacred to them and they had to keep a sacred fire going in order for the prayers uh, to be lifted up. And I was schooled and taught and learned to realize that everything's not going to happen on my TikTok, right? Mm -hmm. Everything's not going to happen on my piece of paper or the flip chart that we have on the wall. Um, and that's not how organizing across different cultures works. You have to learn from each other and know that there's skepticism in the room. And the only way that you can get through that is to keep on showing up. And I had a you know similar experience when I was running an AmeriCorps program. It was in a 100% African-American school. And here I am, a white girl, fresh out of college, coming and bringing 30 AmeriCorps kids into this school, you know, to do a reading program. And I went to Miss Bond, the, you know, principal of Bond, uh, Miss Barbara, the principal of Bond Elementary. And I said to her, you know, Miss Barbara James, like, I'm a white girl and I'm nervous about the school seeing me as this like white savior or like being stereotyped in that way. And she just looked at me and said, you're here, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, I am. You know, and it was the same type of lesson, right? That if you are in a community and you may not be from that community and there may be differences, but if you're in a community and you're authentically there and you're showing up to really you know, put your heart into the work, then that's what matters. Mm. And you're, if you, if you're there with that type of heart and authenticity, then 
you're able to build those bridges and arms start to get uncrossed and you start to get welcomed as a family. Mm. So we are in a moment of continual awakening on the relationship between racial justice, climate, and energy transformation. So tell us why we needed the Cowboy Indian Alliance, CIA, um, in that process. Um, But also talk about the rise of 350.org and sometimes the opportunistic alignments that happen within the climate movement, particularly when we have black and brown and indigenous and people of color who have been facing the brunt of this. And then finally, when the story gets lifted up, that sometimes their climate counterparts who are predominantly white sometimes take the opportunity and it feels so opportunistic, actually. How do you, what's the, What's your take on this moment we're in, a reckoning of this uh, racial justice, but also how sometimes folks take, take, take the liberties of those, of those moments as well? Yeah. I mean, I think Keystone XL and Standing Rock, both of those movements really broke the traditional climate model in the sense that before then, you know, 350.org, Sierra Club, League of Conservation, all these great groups, you know, that do good work but they were fighting these climate battles in the halls of Congress and on college campuses. And they might have been fighting on behalf of black and brown folks or behalf of indigenous folks or on behalf of rural folks, but we weren't at the table creating the solutions. Uh, and we were the ones closest to the pain. You know, it's mm. like Representative Ayanna Presley says that all the time. Like when you're looking for a solution, look to the people that are closest to the pain. Those are the folks that you should be looking for for the solutions, not somebody, you know, writing a book in an ivory tower about it. And I do think that that's how the climate movement was operating. They were talking about particles of carbon and kind of all this theoretical, but you know, meanwhile, in North Omaha, kids are developing asthma at high rates. Meanwhile, in Nebraska, farmers and ranchers land is being taken by eminent domain. Meanwhile, in North Dakota, uh, sacred water is being completely destroyed for a pipeline because of greed. And those relationships and connections were not happening until Keystone XL. We definitely needed the inside strategy in order to win Keystone. We needed, you know, the groups to be lobbying members of Congress and doing the inside strategy to get to Obama. But without the faces and the voices of the people who were closest to that pain, there's no way we would have won on Keystone. And I do think even today, not all of the funders and foundations who support climate work get that. It has gotten so much better. And I have to give groups like Cloud Mountain, Patagonia, the Rockefeller Family Foundation. Those are nonprofit or foundations that get it, that are making an intentional purpose of their grant making to give to the frontline groups. But that wasn't always the case. And, you know, parallel track to democratic politics, it's certainly not the case with democratic politics, right? A lot of the power and money is centered still in D.C. when it has to get down to the states and local communities. So we have control over those resources. Um, But, you know, so I think that we shook things up um, and I think we don't always fit the exact narrative, but that's also why it works because we don't fit, you know, the three perfect talking points. Uh, A lot of folks more from the heart and that's what moves and connects people. No, I I agree with you. I I think that's the only way we, we can be successful in this movement. I think that looking back on it, to me, one of my kind of breakdowns is that Keystone is actually what saved the climate movement. Yeah. Um, it was in 2010 and the Markey Waxman bill and that, that exact uh, system of what you're talking about, that kind of insider kind of play and just using people as props almost. Um, this is not just that this is black people, but poor white people, ranchers, farmers, um, using people as props to, to kind of get a message, but not with them. Really a, a, a movement of, of, of charity, but not solidarity. Mm-hmm. And so I think that when that failed miserably because of that, mm-hmm. um, and when the philosophy industry took advantage of that, when they began to actually put in place their um, climate uh, denial, then their climate delay, it really was the movement around Keystone. And 
I think we owe a, a debt of gratitude to the indigenous community, to the farmers and ranchers, activists like yourself, um, for literally, I think, changing this movement. I think without that, we wouldn't have had the powerful youth movement we have today. We wouldn't yeah. have had uh, groups that are coming from communities of color be more on the front side. And we definitely wouldn't have had environmental justice not be the, the key thread through uh, President Biden's administration. So we really, we, we really want to give a big thanks uh, to you and all of the activists who were instrumental doing Keystone. But as you know, on this podcast, we don't shy away from talking about power, politics, or privilege. Uh, so can you talk to the audience about your privilege? Uh, what is it? Um, how do you use it? And how did you leverage it into building opportunities for indigenous partners who were already fighting for their rights? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I do just want to reflect just quickly on what you just said before that, that, you know, you brought black leaders into the Keystone fight too, and they were non-existent for the first couple of years. And if it wasn't for the hip hop caucus and your leadership, that would have never happened. And I remember at State Department hearings in D.C., but also in Nebraska, you know, the Hip Hop Caucus was there, you That's know, right. with members representing. And Bill McKibben, too, you know, Bill McKibben, you know, when they were doing those White House arrests, I think originally it was planned. It was essentially going to be a bunch of white liberal celebrities and actors and kind of folks who had worked on Obama's campaign. But it was really Bill's wisdom that started to reach out to African-American communities like yourself, the native folks. And he, you know, I'd never met Bill. I didn't even know who he was. I wasn't a climate person. So, you know, when he called and said, we really want you all part of this because you're the ones that would be most impacted. Um, so there were real stars in the Keystone fight. I talk a little bit about kind of what you talked about, Wax, the Waxman bill uh, in my book, Harvest the Vote. So mm-hmm. um, your reflection is totally right on. Um, But on my privilege, you know, I know that I have the ability um, kind of as a white woman from a middle class family, I can walk into a room of political leaders um, and be able to get their attention as chair of the Democratic Party. um, You know, I have that ability to walk into that room. I also have the ability to then walk into a room of farmers and ranchers Um, You know, I may have jeans and cowboy boots on and a dress and cowboy boots on when I walk into the other room. But because of my privilege, I'm able to go into both of those rooms and leverage power and attention. And I know that that's not always the case for our indigenous brothers and sisters. I know for, in fact, even with the Obama administration, who was there are allies and progressive when you know, the tribes were trying to get a nation to nation meeting, right? I mean, tribal nations are sovereign nations within America. Uh, They could not get that meeting, but Bill McKibben and myself could get that meeting. And so we brought them with us. Um, And so I think it is important to know and recognize and fully absorb that you, that we do have privilege. And then how do you use that? And how do you know when to step in, but also when to step back? And I think there's not enough white leaders that know when to step back, right? So it's like they'll put a Black Lives Matter yard sign in their yard, but then they continue to give money and support only white candidates. Like there's a time when you as a white person have to step back and say, how are we actually making space at this table where decisions are made for black leaders, for brown leaders, for Native American leaders, for Asian leaders? And that does not happen enough in democratic politics at all. No, I, I, well, I agree. And I think that's one thing we, we have to fix or we all going to lose. I think that's the, that's the, that is the key to our success, actually. I mean, if we do that, then we win. Uh, we, can, we, can, we can have the things we want to have. We can have the clean air and the clean water. We can have the living wage. We can have health care. We can have all these things that we need to have um, if we do that. Um, for some reason, because of privilege, and to be straightforward, because of white supremacy, um, we 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 don't do that, yeah. and that leads to this. You know, Keystone was very important because it led into um, no dapple, yeah, and Standing Rock. Um, at the same time that Standing Rock is going on, it paralleled what would be the 
the the next phase of the Black Lives Matter movement or the movement for Black Lives. Um, obviously, we know that Black people have been fighting for their lives since they since they got to this country, as have and these people who were here on Turtle Island before. Um, but in that those that that time frame of 2015, 16, 17, 18 is very important from the aspect of how people are looking at the extractive and how we're looking at the movement building. Do you think that we're still on that pathway? Because we're now seeing it continue in with line three, Mountain Valley Pipeline, um, the Bahalia Pipeline in Memphis. We're seeing that we're seeing that continue. But is the movement still, it was kind of hands-off through Keystone, still kind of hands-off through Dakota Access Pipeline, still a little hands-off with the Black Lives Matter. Are they still hands-off now? The climate movement, you mean? Yes. yes and no. So I think that they certainly learned the lesson that when you do create an unlikely alliance, that it gets the attention of politicians and you get to the end goal that we all wanted, right? Which was to stop Keystone. But the funding to the local groups is nowhere near the funding that continues to go to the Sierra clubs and the other organizations. And there are definitely leaders within those organizations that work hand in hand with the frontline groups. But, you know, Bold has now started a pipeline fighters hub. We're launching it in April where we are gonna start connecting all the different pipeline fights into more of a national kind of narrative and picture. Wow, um, that's exciting. But yeah, the Tennessee pipeline, you know, the MVP, Mountain Valley, Dapple, we can actually stop all of those pipelines if Biden decides to reverse all of the Trump water crossing permits that the Army Corps gave all of those pipelines under the Trump administration, which we know never did proper analysis of potential water pollution and impact mm -hmm. on resources impacted on uh, communities of color. So, you know, from my perspective, I was essentially arguing to donors that, yes, Sierra Club and 350 and LCV, they do work with frontline groups. I'm not saying that they don't, but there's nobody centering the frontline groups. And if nobody is centering this frontline groups, then we'll continue to be called on to be in an action, but not called on to be in the room when a policy is being, you know, drawn up. Um, you know, I think the pipeline fighters who ran from Standing Rock to D.C., you know, I think that they have just as much knowledge and ideas on how we can move from a fossil fuel economy to a clean energy economy. Uh, I think they have just as much input as somebody from, you know, NRDC. Thanks. So, I, you know, I do think that it has gotten better. Is it where we need it to be? Nowhere near where we need it to be. Um, but I do appreciate that frontline leaders like Dallas Goldtooth with IEN, who, you know, you know, mm -hmm. continues to show up and continues to say, um, hello, we're already doing that work. You don't have to fund an outside consultant to do it. Our group's doing it. You can fund us to do that work. No. And, and that's, and that's, it is, I can tell you firsthand from the space that I sit in, that's frustrating. It's very frustrating. And it's, it's something that I, have been saying uh, I'm I'm on the I'm on a few boards as well, and and so one of the boards is Green 2.0, uh, which is a which does wonderful work. But I well, I tell them all the time that it's good to have a Green 2.0, but we need a Green 3.0, which actually funds these groups outside. It's one thing to have more diverse climate organizations, but it's another thing to actually fund these frontline and fence line groups um, who are actually doing the work. So I agree with you. Um, talk, they start making the connections, you know, they start, they start connecting the dots, you know, mm -hmm. the water crisis in Flint, you know, you start connecting those dots of the structural racism, and then you actually lead to leaders like Cory Bush, who's now in Congress. And unless we're connecting those dots and really standing up and, you know, I got a lot of flack in Nebraska because we did a resolution against one of our Democrats, Don Klein, who's a county attorney in Douglas County. A uh, young African-American got shot and killed during one of the Black Lives Matter protests. His name is James Scurlock. And, you know, our Democratic attorney general was standing up and just saying racist, racist, racist stuff in his press conferences about James Scurlock, essentially painting him to be, you know, this bad kid from the hood. And when we take on our own 
Um, I still think in progressive circles and in democratic circles, you you get backlash. Like a lot of our senior elder Democrats in the state are still angry at me, right? It happened, you know, six months ago. They're still angry at me, still won't give to the Nebraska Democratic Party because we called out, you know, Don Klein. And turns out two weeks later, he told everybody that he voted for Trump in 2016 and he was going to vote for Trump in 2020 and then did a big press conference with Republicans becoming a Republican. I think we got to call this out. So just like we got to call out white supremacy in our own party, uh, the Democrats, mm-hmm. You got to call it out in the climate movement over and over again. And it doesn't mean that the Sierra clubs and the donors that are funding those groups are bad. It means we have to start opening up a different space and an open in a different path and realize that there are lots of other ideas in order to solve climate change. No, I, I agree. And I just want to say, you know, I actually believe that Cory Bush, to me, is one of the um, most important environmentalists in Congress right now. And the reason I say that is because her ability to break the silos down within the Moon for Black Lives, from where she came from in Ferguson, to connect the dots with um, the wildfires, with the, with the, uh, the, the, the horrible ice storms in Texas, um, obviously Hurricane Sandy and 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 Katrina and Maria and Maria and all the storms that have been have been have been coming, and her ability now to work be working to to get the Amazon workers unionized. Yeah, I I think that she is the epitome of what it means to break down the silos within our movement. And I think and it, and I hope that people don't just look at the casing because she is a a black woman from Missouri. They don't, and she's not, you know, from Vermont or, um, you know, Occidental California. They don't think that she is, or she may not. Actually, I, I don't know if she wears Birkenstocks. I'm assuming she doesn't wear Birkenstocks. I, I, um, <laughs> I could be wrong. <laughs> we could be wrong. They're actually quite comfortable, but she may not be the Birkenstocks kind of congresswoman. Uh, we'll see. I, I have to ask her, but but I think that's, I think you're right. I think that that's where our, our movement, and particularly also around democracy. I think that we saw within Georgia, it's critical that we have particularly black women um, um, in, who are in leaderful positions. Um, so yes, I agree with you on that. And I think that her recent, actually her recent legislation with uh, Markey actually shows the evolution because when Markey first came in, we also spoke with Markey Waxman and then obviously Markey and ALC with the Green New Deal and now Markey and Cori Bush um, in regards to environmental justice, I think that you also are seeing, I think Markey also shows the evolution of the climate movement, which also brings a lot of hope. Um, I think that, you know, we can, we can grow. What are your thoughts on that, actually? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. You know, even the Green New Deal, while obviously it's a great framework and I love so much about it, the messaging and talking points really did leave out rural communities. It left out rural communities of color. It still created this wedge between farmers and ranchers and climate, you know, champions. And I have to say, like, family farmers and ranchers are very different than Purdue and Tyson's and kind of big corporate agriculture. Yes, we should be tackling those big corporations and really dismantling them and decentralizing them. But family farmers and ranchers are on the front lines of climate change. Mm -hmm. They actually are doing everything they can to protect water and to protect their soil and protect the land. Otherwise, they have no economy and no wealth creation and they can't pass on land in their operations to their kids. So, you know, I do think that the Cori Bush bill and Deb Holland's Thrive Act both really showed even like lightning speed, right? So that was really only about a year or two years on how we went from a traditional still environmental frame, for, from my perspective, the Green New Deal was, yes, it talked about social justice, but it didn't include our communities in writing it. And I, when I brought that up to AOC's people, they did not like that when I mm. said that, but that's just the truth. We were not included in the writing of that bill. The folks who wrote that framework were mostly white liberals and it reflected in the talking points and in the messaging. Very different than Deb Holland's Thrive Act and very different from the work that Cori Bush is doing now with Merkley. Mm, no, I love it. No, I love it. 
Your work with renters and community has produced results. And then I just want to commend you for that. Um, is the momentum you have been a part of having an impact on the climate agriculture and, and solutions work for the new admission in Congress? And talk a little bit about that aspect, because there's been a lot of talk about we've been hearing about for agriculture and the hearings around that, but also a little bit about the talk around black farmers and, and, that, and that conversation. Has that been bringing a little bit of a schism um, or, is it, or is it bringing just something that people knew should have been coming for a long time? Yeah. I mean, the ag community realizes that they have no future without Black farmers and they have no future without Latino meatpacking workers and Latino workers in the field. They actually realize this. I don't think it's talked enough about in agricultural circles. It's kind of like known, but they don't really advocate then for uh, immigration and they don't advocate then to return some land back to Black farmers. You know, black farmers used to hold, you know, at least 10% of the land in our country for farming. And now it's less than half a percent, Wow, uh, which is absolutely mm. disgusting. Outrageous. And we should have programs. And I know uh, the Department of Agriculture under Vilsack, they've already started to talk about. And I, you know, think Deb Holland uh, as Secretary of Interior can do some of this work as well. Getting land back in the hands of black farmers, especially in the South, when land was taken from them in so many, you know, just racist ways uh, over the years or, uh, you know, very systematic ways that it was dismantled from them. So I think that's one thing is we have to get land back in the hands of Latino, Asian and black farmers because they just like Native Americans have a way in a deep connection to the land that will be honored and cherished and they'll bring different farming practices that will be sustainable. So I absolutely think that that has to be a focus of this administration. But one of the things that I think is going to be a big uphill climb that the climate movement and the clean energy companies are not addressing yet is the fact that Black, brown, Native American, and rural white folks are the ones that have all the land that this clean energy revolution is going to have to be built on. Mm. And they are not currently in the room being talked about where the clean energy grid needs to be built. Where's the 200, you know, wind farm going to be built or the massive solar farm going to be built. And so that's why you're seeing a lot of resistance at the local level in rural and red states of people pushing back against clean energy because they feel like some of them are just ridiculous and conspiracy theorists. So don't get me wrong. Like I'm not a fool. I know that that exists and that the Republican party and big oil is using a lot of rural communities and really spewing a lot of hate about clean energy and just nonsense. Things like wind turbines cause cancer. You heard, you know, president Trump even, you know, repeat that lie, but there's also real concerns, right? If you live in a small community and a wind company's coming in and they're not asking your input on where the 200 wind turbine should go. And they're not saying to your community, you get to be part of the wealth creation or that you get to keep 25% of the clean energy that you're now creating. You, you get to keep that to power your own town so you can start to get off of coal. Those conversations are happening. Mm. And because those are not happening, you see resistance in rural areas. Right. Yep. So one of the things that I think you, me, and others have to now do is really be in our rural communities to say this revolution is coming and there's going to be a lot of wealth creation happening. You should be benefiting from that wealth because you're going to be part of the solution in creating this whole new energy sector. I love it. No, I'm with you on that 100%. Looking into the future, let's talk about that for a little bit. And thank you for your time. Uh, again, I would just... Appreciate just your your this transparency, and I hope this will be helpful for a lot of different people. And speaking of what you also do, you're a writer, and uh, yeah. you get your you get your you get your right game on there, as they would say. And in the op-ed you wrote for the Nation, um, you said this quote: "We are at a moment in America and around the world where typical organizing is not enough anymore." Showing charts of scientific data will not save the planet. Sending emails, holding rallies, and tweeting will not save the planet. And organizing around climate change, mostly on the coast, will not save the planet, end quote. So, Jane, what do you mean by this, and what will save the planet? Yeah. So that article, I really started talking about 
the fact that red and rural states have two U.S. senators just as much as huge, big blue states like California and New York. And this is often a like moment that I get a lot of hate tweets and hate emails <laughs> saying that it shouldn't be that way, right? Like Nebraska and Montana shouldn't get two U.S. senators and California as big as they are only get two U.S. senators. But the reality is like that is not going to change. And so that is the political framework that we now have to operate under. My feeling is, why aren't we? In Nebraska, we're a population 1.9 million, right? Obviously, there's more people who live in Brooklyn than in Nebraska. <laughs> so $10 million in our state for a campaign goes a heck of a long way than $10 million in California or New York. Yep. My bottom line is, is like we need to be doubling down and tripling down in the money that we're investing in red states so we can recruit, cultivate, train really strong candidates, but also have the money to run and win those campaigns. Stacey Abrams did it in Georgia, and that was not out of thin air. She had to raise massive amounts of money, and she worked hand in hand with the state party there. So she didn't just run an outside campaign where they were just talking about progressive values. They were talking about progressive values and they did a lot of work with outside groups, but they also reformed the Democratic Party and made sure that they were leaders and that they were registering voters in a partisan way as well, that the Democratic Party was doing that hand in hand. So from my perspective, we need, yes, rallies and we, of course, need PowerPoints and data charts. But unless we're going to get serious about electing people in red states, so when we want to change the laws, we have numbers in the Senate to actually change those laws. Otherwise, we're gonna be spinning our wheels. Speaker Pelosi is gonna to continue to pass really great laws and they're gonna get stalled in the Senate when we can and should be winning races in Nebraska, in South Dakota, in North Dakota. We used to have Democrats in these red states, but the Democratic Party essentially abandoned rural and red states. And now we're stuck with you know Governor Pete Ricketts who is out literally this week saying that if we pass uh, recreational, recreational, illegal marijuana, which is going to be on the ballot in 2022 in our state, that it will kill children. That's what mm. he said in a press conference, that marijuana will kill children. So we have a lot of work to do. And we have people in these states that are willing to do the work. Now we have to back that up with the money. Chad's had two more questions. I thank you for your time so much. My question really is now, I want to take this global for a second, because as you have, people are looking now at Keystone, they're seeing a clear-cut start and end. They, they, they're they seeing a win. Um, so how should the U.S. show up on these global spaces, particularly with COP26 fast approaching? But also, um, what would be your advice to, as we talk about others who are coming from you globally, um, to fighting pipelines around the world? You know, I think even though we had so much success on Keystone, I do just want to say, like, there's still things that we have to finish on that. Like 63 of our landowners are still in court today mm -hmm. because our state laws are so bad. TransCanada is still going through the eminent domain process. They're not vacating those lawsuits. So we don't feel threatened that the pipeline is going to be built any day like we did under Trump. But we still have work to do, even in Nebraska, to make sure that those landowners' land isn't taken from them, even though TransCanada doesn't have a permit. Our laws are so backwards. But one of the things that we have to acknowledge in the climate movement, as well as in democratic politics, including the Biden administration, as they're going to the world stage, is that if we're serious about climate change, we cannot permit any new fossil fuel projects. Like, on the one hand, Democrats and progressives are saying we're climate champions, but then on the other, turning a blind eye when we say we have to stop DAPL, we have to stop Line 3, we have to stop the pipeline down in Memphis because they don't want to piss off unions. And that's really it for the Democratic leaders. They don't want to make unions angry. And so they continue to allow the permitting of fossil fuel projects. But I'm sorry, like Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden, you can't be climate champions and still approve pipelines, still approve. Facts. Facts. That's the bottom line. So let's start there. Like for me, that's like the fundamental first line in the sand that we have to be able to know that the political leaders are with us on this side of the sand of the line, not on the other side. Mm -hmm. And you and I both deeply care about our union brothers and sisters. We don't want them to be without jobs. 
And I don't want the solar and wind jobs to be only $20 or $30 an hour jobs. I want those to be the $80 an hour jobs, just like the pipeline jobs with the pension and with all the union benefits. And I'm right there standing shoulder to shoulder next to them to fight that. But there is hard truths about the fact that we can't keep on building pipelines. So for me, that's like fundamental. And we haven't even gotten to that place yet, I feel like, because we are talking about solving climate change by building clean energy. But that's not enough, because if you're still building fossil fuel pipelines, we're still putting carbon into the world. Come on now, you heard <laughs> Jane, she heard it from her straight from her mouth. She said you can't be talking about renewables on Monday and building pipelines on Tuesday. That is not the that is not how a climate champion climate That's champion cool. works. That is not how it goes down. Jane, my last question is a fun cultural question. So before I get to that, is there anything you want to make sure that folks know um, about Bold and other work you're doing and 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 and, and how to get in contact with you? Yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter at Jane Kleb. Um, you can go to Bold Nebraska or boldalliance.org and see all the work that we're doing. Uh, Pipeline Fighters Hub will be up in April. Uh, so follow my Twitter for that. Um, but I tweet out a lot about different actions. Like I'll be in DC April 1st uh, with the Indigenous Environmental Network and the young runners that are coming from DAPL and Line 3 uh, to put some pressure on Joe Biden to reverse those pipelines. So if you want to connect with other leaders, if you follow me, I'm often tweeting out the good work that other people are doing on the ground. No, thank you for that. And thank you for what you do. My question actually goes into that. So when you want to get pumped up, you're ready to get to your fight, ready to put on your cowboy boots and your cowboy hat, ready to turn up, what what goes into the player there? Uh, 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 or, you know, what's the, what's the Jane Fleming Cleave soundtrack? for ready to go out there and, and, and kick some fossil butt. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, first I put on my rings. I feel like that's my like superhero shield, um, you know, and I got a new tattoo also recently. That's also part of my like superhero clothing. Um, but I definitely listened to a lot of seventies music and uh, 80s music. So the Twisted Sister, you know, we're not okay. going to take yeah. it and that I'll be listening to or Stevie Nicks, you know, stand back. So I, music definitely is a huge part of also how I relax. You know, I often, you know, hear from young people. They're like, how are you? Go, go, go. You know, you're running the party. You're running bold. You have three kids. But I walk every single day and I listen to music because it's like my one hour a day that I reset, refocus think strategically, reflect on the day, and just like rock out. And so, yeah, when I'm uh, headed to the White House, you know, for the action on April 1st, you can bet I'll be walking from my hotel uh, to meet the runners and I'll have my AirPods in listening to music. <laughs> That's amazing. And that is our guest today. She is Jane Fleming Cleve, chair of the Nebraska Democratic Party and president of Bold Alliance. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know.